how do you like that classiness we've got it we finally got an intro <laughs> oh man oh man welcome ladies and gentlemen to the second session session two devil in the white city by eric larson with myself frank and my co-host for this entire book i am so happy to see her again lindsay Sharman, rogue ways podcast how you doing lindsay Hey, how are you doing? It's so good to be here. I love this book, and that intro is amazing. Now you need like a smoking jacket and like a pipe. And I do. To be sitting next to a fire, like would, that's what will finish this. I would love to have a pipe in here. It would be so classy. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I'm glad everybody has enjoyed themselves so far. And man, what do we have tonight? I've got where the hell am I? Uh, I, I got some notes here. And then I just want to go through some of my uh, general thoughts. I want to throw it over to you. We can go through our highlights. We can, And then I, I, I see some great submissions on the thread tonight. But it is covering uh, page, what was it, 84 to 160 or something like that, right? That is correct. What? Oh, wait, wait, wait. 84 to 160, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, 84 to 160. We stopped right at the angel from Dwight. Now... Here's what I have this week, and you let me know if this rings true with you. It opens up with H.H. H. Holmes, the isolated wife of H.H. H. Holmes, Murda. Her uh, great-uncle, Belknap, is in town, and the entire time he's in town, he's wrestling with this, this distrust that he has of this Holmes character, having weird experiences with him around, uh, around Holmes, having his bedroom doorknob tested in the middle of the night in his really creepy castle he's been building right there in the middle of uh, Chicago, having his signature forged to the tune of thousands of dollars. Not only that, Lindsay, but I thought of you in particular on page 87. 87, listen to this description over here. Although Belknap had read much about the World's Fair and did want to see its future home, see its future home, he did not relish the idea of spending a full day with Holmes. Holmes was charming and gracious, but something about him made Belknap uneasy. He could not have defined it. Indeed, for the next several decades, alienists and their successors would find themselves hard-pressed to describe with any precision what it was about men like Holmes that could cause them to seem warm and ingratiating, but also telegraph the vague sense that some important element of humanness was missing. And they go on to drop the word psychopath. And I know that is something, psychopathy is something you spend a lot of time on there. And there is just that, that's something I think is very relatable these days too. There's something missing. There's a spark missing from some people. You just you just don't want to dig too far beyond the surface out of just fear of what you'll find. Yeah, and they nailed it too, right? He said there was something, he was charming and gracious, but something about him made him uneasy. And psychopaths are almost always charming and gracious. They're almost always like, sometimes the coolest people you meet, you're like, wow, this person's amazing. I tell people, I'm like, anytime you're sort of blown away by someone and really impressed by them or really just feel like, wow, we really connected, you should stop and just take a moment. Because it's not that every single one of them is a psychopath, but every psychopath is like that. They're very good at giving you exactly what you want. Uh, in order to feel special and feel seen and feel heard and feel like connected. And they're so good at that. I love this though, because I'm like, this was new to them. See, like this was new to people somehow, or I guess maybe just the idea of even psychoanalyzing or psychotherapy was just starting to be really accepted. But it sounds like people had no idea before this that psychopaths exist and it can't be true that there were no psychopaths there's just something else that made it apparent or start to be focused on mm -hmm. and i love they called it moral insanity at first like it's moral insanity <laughs> they're in where they have no morals actually which is true they don't they have no remorse they have no guilt they have no idea of they understand what we think is moral but they don't hold those as moralities as values at all. They're not anywhere in their uh, entire being at all. And it's just weird. And eventually um, they call them psychopaths, Cleckley psychopaths, because Dr. Hervey Cleckley describes them finally as a subtly constructed reflex machine 
which can mimic the human personality perfectly. So perfect is his reproduction of a whole and normal man that no one who examines him in a clinical setting can point out in scientific or objective terms why or how he is not real. <laughs> Such a good description, actually. <laughs> yeah. It is really hard to define. It's really hard to describe what it is, and all it really can come down to is they have no remorse, they have no guilt, they have no shame. Uh, and you know, it's not It's not as if, in, in, in any way, shape, or form, is it... Um, is it conveyed that they're living in a world without crime, living in a world without violent crime? Obviously, it is. Uh, I mean, they talk about the murder rates, how they're they're still in the cities, very very disturbing. But there's a difference between this kind of new fangled killer that everybody's being introduced to, uh, and very recently at this time, uh, just before this book picks up on a chronological level there was jack the ripper over there in Whitechapel across the pond in fact there was one part in this section that we had read where some people had had become um had become a little bit nervous that jack the ripper had hitched a boat over to new york and was now in the americas because there was a very grisly murder seemingly uh just for the the sake of the kill in New York, and they thought that this was the the mark of Jack the Ripper. He was back, and now he had come to a new continent. So, um, but again, that's something where one name it was an aberration, it was an outlier, and you didn't think that this was going to be a new breed of um, of criminal. But you know, we 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 get a lot more this. I mean, it, it your skin crawls a lot as you read through this mo- this book, and in this section, we got a couple of really stomach twisting situations. Uh, we learn that essentially, H.H. Uh, H. Holmes is building his own crematorium. For a time, he was finding it hard to get the temperatures in his kiln hot enough to dispose of what we all can very easily conclude is human waste. Uh, we also are introduced to this new uh, kind of pitiful character, Ned Connor, uh, who was hired by Holmes at the pharmacy. He has both his sister Gertrude and his wife Julia seduced by Holmes. We are starting to get really tense moments out of the book now that Holmes, is at his appetite for murder is growing probably really insatiable he's got so many people around him he has more and more rooms and more and more ways of just disposing of them like that scene where holmes asks ned connor to get inside of his airtight soundproof closet to see if anything could be heard from the outside and the idiot does it uh you know he's like i i'm reading this and i had read it before i was like wait does he get does he get out and then all oh, he gets out okay you <laughs> dummy but um so we get a lot of that uh away from that we start being able to really assess jackson park jackson park the site that's been picked for the fair uh is being assessed by the architects and uh, this is on page 95 it is absolutely terrible you got to hear we got we got to go over some of the things that were used to describe this area I, I just put on my uh, in the margins on my book I just put LOL because it's just so hilarious they gazed at the the land Jackson Park with a feeling of almost despair Jackson Park was one square mile of desolation mostly treeless save for pockets of various kinds of oak burr pin black and scarlet rising from a tangled undergrowth of elder wild plum and willow in the most exposed portions there was only sand tufted with marine and prairie grasses one writer called the park remote and repulsive <laughs> another another wrote a sandy waste of unredeemed and desert land uh, it was ugly a landscape of last resort olmstead himself said uh, had said of jackson jackson park quote if a search had been made for the least park-like ground within miles of a city nothing better meeting the requirement could have been found in fact the site was even worse than it appeared many of the oaks were dead given the season the dead were hard to distinguish from the living the roots of others were badly damaged test borings showed that the earth within the park consisted of a top layer of black soil about one foot thick followed by two feet of sand and then 11 feet of sand so saturated with water Burnham wrote quote it became almost like quick quicksand and was often given this name um it, it is uh, it, it's incredible 
it's incredible because what this really does, uh, Lindsay, is it um, it accentuates the horrible situation that they're in with the time that they don't have, with the enormity of the vision that they had, and now this is the bedrock, or lack thereof, of where where this needs to be, the foundation needs to be laid. And, and, uh, and the horror of a little amount of time left to achieve such success is daunting enough, and what is just as daunting is now that Daniel Burnham has a has to manage it all without his trusty companion of long, long many years, John Root, and his charm as he dies from pneumonia. So uh, it's just, it's just incredible, um, and we haven't even gotten into the vision here. Uh, what what do you have so far on all this? Oh, it's so sad when Root dies, and you can just see like their best friends. And I got really sad too when he says, "You know, don't promise me you won't leave me again." And he's like, "I won't." And then he leaves, and then he dies. <laughs> I'm like, "Why did you leave him?" He literally asked you not to, and, and he, he just died. left the room too. It's just like, yeah, jeez, <laughs> what do you have to go to the bathroom or something like that? I got to go talk to your wife really quick while you're dying. Oh, God. But, yeah, this uh, park is so bleak, you know, and they're talking about how that biggest building, the liberal arts building, right? I don't know if it's in this exact place or not, but on one side of it, they're like, oh, it's only sinking like five inches or so. Like, we can handle that. And on the other edge of the building, on like the south end of the building or something, it just sinks like 11 feet instantly. They just stop the test. And they're like, how will we ever create this one building when it's such a different um you know type of land below it is such different saturation levels and whoever this peabody guy is says it it can't be done like it will not work like you guys are doomed and there's no point to this um but they have their super rich you know menu which is so weird like just this what if you ate all of this would you not just vomit like it's it's very many different things i gotta tell you once i have to tell you uh the every reference that has dropped in our lap of a meeting of these men, these architects, these artists that come together in which wine and brandy and cigars are being served and they're all by a crackling fire. Uh, it makes me very cozy. I would love to have a cigar and a coffee with these guys or with anybody, with any of my friends. I love that setting. So when I, when I, I mean, when I read the, the menu that evening, how rich it was, I was like, jeez. It's I mean, an eighteen course meal. <laughs> I mean, like if you count the drinks and the cigars and the cigarettes, which is interesting too. They're like, okay, now it's time for cigarettes, and then at the very end, here's the cigars. Like they have this all planned out. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. I was lucky enough to do an actual high tea once. Like you have to dress up and you have to like look very formal, and you go to tea, and it is kind of like this. There's actually like multiple courses, and everything is very well thought out, and also quite spendy. It's a little bit. It's like the women's side of of this same type of. A so I hope you get to enjoy something like that. It's actually super fun. Okay, yeah, I would. Yeah, well, I hope so too. And you know, in the chat room, a couple of things were just said. Number one, Laura said, "I would love for this book to become a movie, a very expensive film to make." Uh, the rights to this book has been purchased uh, years ago, I believe, by either Leonardo DiCaprio and or Martin Scorsese. Oh come on, guys! It has Get been it. it has been on ice for years. the The rights have already been built, and it's one of those things where I thought about it. I was like, "Could the I can see a Leonardo DiCaprio type of thing here? I can see that." Um, yeah. And then I read about that, so that had been that had been something else. Uh, Deborah also said most of them were sick and full of pains. I'm glad you said so because Lindsay, I wanted to bring this up. Everyone in this book is a physical wreck, and it's getting me nervous. I don't know. Is there any character in here who is healthy? It's either their feet, their lungs, their teeth. Everybody is falling apart, and it's just just incredible. It it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, there's... I keep thinking about this and I'm like, there's two main things I can, I can, I can pinpoint and say, this is probably why everyone's health started falling apart at the same time. And one of them we mentioned last week, which was the, uh, just that there was radio and there was telegram and there was electricity. And this was all super new. And our bodies are actually very sensitive to electric, electric, uh, any kind of radiation. I mean, just the sun going through big 
you know, cycles and sending out solar waves was causing pandemics before we had radio or anything else. So once we had these things coming, there's this really well documented that every time we had something new, every time it was sort of pulsed across an area, everyone in that area got sick. Uh, and not everyone, but a lot of people. So some people thrive in it and other people decay in it. Yeah. So we see this happening. I also... This is when we started like to Holmes. really like Holmes. Uh, Dan Dandy in the chat room just just quipped, except the serial killer. He's feeling fine. Yeah, yeah. he's doing great. <laughs> he, he feeds off of other people's energy. So, <laughs> but he. Um, but they, we also at this time have this big move away from real food. We start to get packaged food, and we start to get more and more packaged food, or pre-processed food, and pre-stored food, and preserved food. And that is it was a huge shift for humans too. We used to just eat off the farm and eat off our local, you know, whatever was around, whatever people were producing. It was pretty fresh, pretty good, you know, high quality stuff. And then we went. The other direction so the combination too would be really difficult we have this really a lot of richness and sugar also started to enter and just i think all of that together especially then you look at just like the quality of city itself it's like belching smoke everywhere and there's just chaos and stress and disgusting disease the water they talk about it so many times in here how the water is this huge problem and even if they're their best efforts they're still just filled with dead cats and horses and oh like, you know that's you know, the other thing there too gross. all the things that you learned about um where is it uh, i think it's on page on page 209 no one had forgotten how in 1885 fouled water had ignited an outbreak of cholera and typhoid that killed 10 percent of chicago's population 10%. 10% of the city was killed in a, and and this is news that you know we we over here in the 21st century I mean we don't we don't really study the gilded age in America that much especially just occurrences especially when it comes to to city and public health or, uh, events but you would think that 10% of a major american city is I, that's that's a huge thing that's not that's 1885 that's 100 years before i was born and um, and yeah, it goes it goes on from there. You know, as far as then we get to the convocation, page one thirteen, and this is where we start getting as far as the magnitude of the vision. We get that this wonderful uh, we get that that um, that vision with this wonderful scene of the architects getting together to present their respective ideas. You start seeing it uh, in on page one thirteen. Everybody's spending time telling you what they're going to do. They decided they wanted to capture, recapture the glory of ancient Rome, uh, each building more magnificent than the last. I love how there is unspoken moments of people trying to temper other people's outdoing one another, trying to take a 450-foot dome off of one building that would completely throw off the balance of the entire campus, things like that. I, it, it's really incredible. And then an attendee, Attendee at this first meeting, I think it's uh, St. Gaudens, rose. St. Gaudens rose to his feet. He had been uh, quiet all day. He rushed to Burnham and took his hands uh, into his own. He said, quote, I never expected to see such a moment. He said, look here, old fellow. Do you realize this has been the greatest meeting of artists since the 15th century? He's talking about the Renaissance. That's and high praise. <laughs> that's, it's, it's just it's an it's enormous way to put this into perspective what they were trying to achieve with this wasteland especially in the t but still with all of these everybody patting each other on the back with how splendid all of the visions were uh they all acknowledge the kind of minds architectural and artistic landscaping minds that had been brought together here still there was this 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 thing, this black cloud hanging over their heads, they have less than two years. How are you going to do this? How the hell are you going to do this? Um, well, there is one thing that made it possible that we learn, and I wanted to make sure that I highlighted this because it may also explain why. This is a major question that a lot of people who uh, theorize about one thing or another, it may explain why every structure but one at this place in Jackson Park no longer exists. And that is that not one brick was used in the construction of any of these 
buildings no stone no brick they used what they called staff which is a sort of plaster that would mimic stone once it was hardened and once it was set in place um they, yeah it was still steel frame but as far as buildings buildings that were that were built to last i now you know, for anybody that says, oh, oh, the 1893 World's Fair, that's just another example of Tartaria, um, you know, had that uh, this old uh, planet-wide civilization that was, that was erased from the Earth. I said, no, what erased this one from the Earth is the fact that they used plaster to build all of these structures. And, you know, you give it 100 years, and most of them are probably going to go away. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is also why I think you can look back at some old pictures of the cities that burnt down pretty much everywhere they had the same fate basically as, as this chicago's fairs because these things are super flammable they're using cheap wood and cheap plaster and all of this stuff doesn't last it's super flammable it's make they're mixing it with brand new electricity which probably wasn't insulated very well and then also often those gas jets and those gas lines it's like a built to burn down basically like it's inviting the fires so that's another thing people point to and they say oh why did every single city burn down and how did they rebuild it all and it's like well you know, we also underestimate that, you know, at one point they say right in the same section that there's 25,000 men just trying to work. 25,000 back then. I mean, if we needed it right now and we needed to build, like we would suddenly find some big effort too and be able to pull off some grand things. We're just fat and well-fed and a little bit lazy maybe. And so we think like, that's impossible. Nobody could ever do that. But we're not used to working very hard in our culture, most of us, right? We don't even know what that means. Um, so I think that's another side of it too, is just, and the pride, you know, there's that point too, where they're um, back on page 98, Burnham was speaking to that same gathering right after that rich meal. And he says, gentlemen, 1893 will be the third great date in our country's history on two others, 1776 and 1861, all true Americans served. And so now I ask you to serve again. Uh, and the men left the banquet hall that night united like soldiers in a campaign. And I, I think the whole country kind of felt like that, you know, and so everybody wanted to, you know, come together and really pull this off. And we don't really have that going for us anymore either. We don't have this sort of uniting cause and this feeling of patriotism or anything else that brings us together and inspires us to do big things. So all of that stuff combined in reading this book, I, I was the same. I was like, no, I can see how you would build this and then it would burn down. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And, and listen, we haven't even gotten to the, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, well, at least they got the architects together. They have some plans and now they're going for it. And let's see if they can make it to the finish line. There are going to be quite a few restarts along the way there are winds they deal with there is fire that they deal with we're going to we're going to see that it's not spoilers i'm just putting it out there it, it's incredible how the timelines are managed and as you said you know what the the corners that are essentially cut to it, without without losing the grandeur of the the presentation um so uh, going on from there, we learn about well, we, well, this guy, Ned Connor, he gets suckered into buying the pharmacy from, oh, pretty much taking the pharmacy from Holmes. Holmes gives it to him um, by working out a raise in which whatever amount he was raised in salary was really just used to pay back Holmes, whatever. But he was really being set up to get attacked by all the people that Holmes had owed money to, and in the background... Holmes is having sex with every woman in Ned's family. Um, Gertrude, who is is uh, Ned's sister, leaves town completely distraught. Obviously, she had been getting courted and had her heart broken or whatever, rejected. She leaves town, and then she eventually dies from some kind of an illness. Julia. Do you you think she was poisoned? Because he was into that, too. I mean... I don't know. It's because it's weird. The amount of distress she's in, I'm almost like, well, did he rape her or something? And then she leaves and then she just suddenly dies. Maybe. I, maybe it was a euphemism. Maybe she committed suicide or something. And they were just like, just tell people she just died. But I also wondered since he has so many potions available to I him, thought if he about slipped it. or something. I thought about it. I, I thought about, okay, does he have anything that's time released? Yeah. Uh, is there, you know, what, but it, it could also just be that she leaves and. I mean, everybody seems to be in some kind of a health distress. Uh, so maybe it just sure. was, maybe it was just 
good fortune for Holmes, who obviously didn't care about anybody. And then Julia, <laughs> Julia Connor was obviously forbidden fruit because when Ned and Julia's problems, uh, they can't be reconciled. Ned leaves. Julia stays with Holmes. And all of a sudden, Holmes, now that he has Julia all to himself, is repulsed by her and her daughter, Pearl. And then Julia and Pearl's end, their end, their lives end in just the most horrible way. And the, um, the obviously, we're introduced to the articulation process of turning victims into skeletons and selling their skeletons to doctors and universities. So you can see how Holmes is not only um, going to be satisfying a primal urge to kill but he is also going to be selling the remains for uh, a great profit and he kills them both this little girl and this woman uh, Julia who goes with him to an, uh, an operating room to have an abortion kills them both with chloroform on Christmas Eve and ugh, and, I mean, and he skins her yeah. Right. Because they say when he gave him to the other guy who was good at the articulating, I forget who he was, but one of his little three helpers, he says like the body was not recognizable because it had been skinned. <laughs> and like, may, what the hell? Now, this is I wonder, because some people have said that maybe H.H. H. Holmes is um, Jack the Ripper. And I have no idea. I've not looked into whether that could even exist, if the timelines are right or what. But I wonder with this level of gruesomeness, you know, he clearly was experimenting or you know having absolutely no qualms about doing whatever to the body so it's pretty creepy there was an entire segment on uh, in in this book about about grave robbing yeah. and to think <laughs> just to think that in any doctor's office around the country or university at a time there were it, it was a high probability that you either had a skeleton dangling in your classroom that either originated from a grave robbed corpse or from somebody that was killed for profit uh where, where there was another section in this in this um in these these chapters where it said that some cemeteries were corpseless that, that it was had, like the sanitariums were empty of, of corpses because they had all been taken by the doctors and the colleges. And uh, and, and again, again, just like we were talking about in session one with this ability to create a really incredible business out of getting very naive people into ensuring their lives and then just killing them and then, you know, producing a body in one condition or another. Uh, you know, forensics was not very, you know, uh, toxicology was not something that was a thing. There's no security cameras all over the place. This was a very, very, it, it, thankfully, we still had a, we were still a largely moral society. Because yeah. it, if if we lived in the same kind of social looseness from 1893 right now with the level Ooh. with how we've been completely severed from any kind of a a moral base, a commonly held moral base. Can you imagine what would be going on right now? The Long Island serial killer would be child's play. And he probably is, to be honest. Yeah, I feel like we're almost getting back to that in many ways, even though we have more surveillance than ever. I don't know that it's always used in the right way, but it's, it was so interesting to learn, too, about these you know, policing techniques were, were new. They were growing. They were just starting in that Bertillon identification on page 122. It says the Bertillon identifications of known criminals was devised by a French criminologist, Alphonse Bertillon. I'm probably not saying that right. The system required police to make a precise survey of the dimensions and physical peculiarities of suspects. He believed that each man's measurements were unique and this could be used to penetrate the aliases that criminals deployed in moving from city to city. So in, t in theory, it says a detective in Cincinnati could telegraph a few distinctive numbers to investigators in New York with the expectation that if a match existed, New York would find it. Like the idea to tell each other what the perpetrators looked like is new. Right. Why is that new? It's just things like that, like strike me. And I'm like, really? They're just now thinking about this? Um, and there's a lot that they go into about the police work itself that is new. Detectives are sort of new. But Holmes... That's another thing he had in his belt, right? He purposely 
courted the police officers and brought them out to lunch and gave them cigars and, you know, got them on his side so that they would never have looked twice. They wouldn't even believe that he was hiding how many bodies down in that nasty basement. Yep, absolutely. He wouldn't. And uh, <laughs> we'll get there. 133. Now we start talking about. I mean, there's a lot of things that are that are that are amazing that happen here. Um, first of all, it's just incredible the innovations that that go on, the innovations that go on with all this stuff. We we have, um, and they're made all out of necessity for the fair having to go on. There's there's innovations with public drinking water breakthroughs, as we were talking about before. There's also, if you go to page one, one thirty one two paragraphs that really lay out how the 1893 World Fair became the supreme battleground, a decisive battleground between the competing ideas of Thomas Edison's direct current power and Tesla's alternating current technology, Tesla winning. Um, it didn't go the way I expected. Yeah. I was like, of course Edison's going to win. He's That's what we use now. Like, this is Edison's technology. This is Edison's world. But we're now, al- yeah, we're alternating. Tesla. Yeah, we're alternating currents because of Tesla. And it said right there, Westinghouse won um, and helped change the history of electricity. So that's these crazy. are all things. These are all things that were decided over 1893, and uh, and then also we start getting into how all the exhibits that were being planned. We have the Wild West exhibit, which I think is really interesting because when we were doing our badass month in in June on this show, on quite frankly, um, one of the badasses this mo- uh, this past June that I highlighted one night was Annie Oakley, and one of the things that we read about about Annie Oakley is that she was there at the 1893 World's Fair doing all of her uh, precision precision rifle work shots and all that stuff, her, her marksmanship uh, tricks and all that stuff with, um, with Buffalo Bill, with Colonel William Cody, Buffalo Bill. They wanted to be part of the, they wanted to be part of the fair, but they said that uh, they were rejected on grounds of incongruity. Undeterred, Cody secured rights to a large parcel of land adjacent to the park, and I read a little bit about that on, quite frankly, in June. They did very well adjacent to the 1893 World's Fair. Annie Oakley was there. They uh, they put on their show, and, and they were one of many people who profited from just the, uh, the juxtaposition to the fair and all the people that were the foot traffic that was showing up. But aside from that, tell me what you thought about the inconceivable way that they were bringing exhibits together how they were ordering pygmies like they were popsicles yeah. uh you know I, I but i love olmstead's obsession with the boats how he wanted ethnic uh boat he wanted canoes he wanted you know vikings native americans he he wanted it all there he wanted so many things there on display so i really love reading about the 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 pulling together of exhibits here too now I loved too that they were like, let's let's have the most esteemed professor of anthropology like trying to pull all this together, and eventually they're like, uh, no, that's not actually going to make this fun for anyone. <laughs> like, very intelligent, but it's a little bit too much brains. We need a little bit more, you know, sauciness. And they get that young guy, that Soul Bloom, who ends up being basically, it seems like the inventor of modern advertising, where you just lie about how great something is and that's good enough for everyone and it makes them want it and it works and no one's ever mad about it so uh, i think that's interesting but i also when they're looking to try to finish you know they've got the buildings plan now they know the layout they've got the landscape kind of the plan is at least settled right and they've got all this up but they don't have their eiffel tower they're trying to out eiffel eiffel right and and eiffel himself actually submits a plan and it's to be he wants to out eiffel himself and build an even larger tower but they're like no 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 we don't want just a tower we want something that is completely different but more mind-blowing and more innovative and they have all these people submitting things and i like kind of wish that they would have won as crazy as they were like the toboggan tower where it was going to be 8,947 feet, nearly nine times the height of the Eiffel Tower. This is on page 134. With a base of 1,000 feet in diameter, sunk 2,000 feet into the earth. What? How is this? (laughs) Elevated rails would lead from the top of the tower all the way to New York, Boston, Baltimore, and other cities. Visitors ready to conclude their visit to the fair and daring enough to ride elevators to the top would then toboggan 
all the way back home. There, like, is it, there was is, that a joke? They're, they're essentially <laughs> saying, ladies and gentlemen, what that means is they're essentially saying you would take an elevator 9,000 feet up in the air. And I think that the, the Freedom Tower in in the uh, in uh, New York that replaced the Twin Towers is 1,776 feet tall. It's 1,776 feet so tall. eight times taller. This is eight, like five eight times taller. Exactly. Think about that. How many times you're going to, just so that you can take an elevator to the top and then get, pretty much sit on a skateboard and go and go from Chicago to New York. You're just holding on to dear life and going from Chicago to New York. Like, I can't, you can't even fathom what the hell, and there's a lot of that. It seems like everybody was just trying to submit tower uh, display. We haven't gotten to the crown jewel just yet. Just yet. Next next it's, segment. It's hinted at. They're yes. like, oh, a young a young engineer from I forget where Philadelphia or something had had an idea. But I think Pittsburgh. Sure <laughs> I think Pittsburgh. Yeah. I think all, all you Pittsburghers out there, you are uh, you're you're about to get another feather in your cap, because that's where the engineer is from. That comes up with the the uh, the innovation of a lifetime. And you know, um, it, it, there there is one other thing over here. I think on. Um, page 143 143 there I, I thought it was really interesting to hear about the women's building and yes. how and all the fighting that happened amongst the women among the women who were trying to get there uh, who trying to either get the the building built designed and built and then to put out a call for what is essentially when they're looking for exhibits it was essentially they pulled out a call for a potluck and yeah. everybody started sending all of this stuff that had nothing to do with each other and they're thinking okay we have to start rejecting all of the exhibits that are being submitted because it just doesn't make any sense it's getting a little bit cluttered it's nonsensical and then of course anybody who got their anything that was rejected gets pissed off and it, it leaves us it leaves us on page one th oh, yeah, wait, oh, I'm sorry 143 this is when uh, Hayden what's her name uh, yeah Hayden Hayden she fought the arrangement in her uh, in her quiet, stubborn way until she could take it no longer. She walked into Burnham's office, began to tell him her story, and promptly, literally went mad. Tears, heaving sobs, <laughs> cries of anguish, <laughs> and of all of it, a severe breakdown. Uh, an acquaintance called it with a it called it quote with a violent attack of high nervous excitement of the brain. <laughs> and I started thinking about how in incredible the, the the dichotomy is between men and women in this. Uh, in this book because the men i mean they're falling apart physically as well they're getting gout uh their gout is inflamed uh their eyes are falling out teeth are fall i mean everybody's going through hell but you know yeah. the, the the woman just they she just screamed and cried i i, I i'm sure some of the men wanted to scream into a pillow too but damn she went to a she i think she was diagnosed with melancholia and she um uh, she went to a little uh, retreat for a little while now was that Oh God, it's so classic. Like I, I'm like, well, if you don't want people to stereotype you, then don't fit the stereotype. This is exactly. Don't cry. But if you told me that there was going to be one women's building and a woman was designing it, and other women were going to not actually have authority, but have like social, because that's what it was, right? One of the other women, Miss Palmer, had. Uh, was it Miss Palmer? I think it was Miss Palmer was like someone's wife was Palmer's wife. And so she just felt like she had authority. So she was just sort of coming in and bossing her around and doing her thing. And like, this is so women, like, this is how women act. It's how they treat each other. And it would drive you crazy. It would drive you crazy. Like she worked so hard to get seen as an architect and be accepted as an architect and have her building going up and what an accomplishment. And then this other woman comes in and just tries to control it all. So I also can totally relate to going in and when you start talking about it, you feel like you're just angry and you're, you're kind of fine. And then all of a sudden you're bawling and screaming because it's actually so much emotions you've been suppressing the whole time, which is also very women. Um, so there, you know, women and men are very different. I, in my opinion, and this is a perfect example of how different they are. The men, like you said, are falling apart too. They're not going to cry in front of anyone, like for nothing. That is never going to happen. Right. <laughs> right. Their, their, their leg, their limbs are going to fall off, but they won't cry. Right. But you know, one right. thing that does really tie them all together, aside from the fact that everybody's going nuts from trying to pull this thing together is that, uh, any, any imparting of authority 
any small imparting of authority onto one person just turns them into, you know, you really have to fight. Micah. You have to fight your inner, your your inner, uh, I don't know, dictator. Because yeah. everybody goes nuts with it and it changes you. It doesn't matter how small a menial the task is. If you have somebody underneath you, boy, oh, boy, you, you really have to keep yourself in check because it, it can it can run out of, out of hand. So that's really where we are right now. We're getting closer and closer to big time um, innovation. We're getting closer and closer to, uh, you know, they're, they're going to move this along as far as getting closer to opening day because there's not that much time. And uh, and then and then Holmes is is getting crazy, and that, yeah. it, that's going to continue to churn your stomach. Um, I have uh, oh there Can is I, go ahead. Well, I have one more thing that is so funny slash sad, but uh, they start listing the deaths on page one forty five of of who's died so far, and it's like fractured skull, fractured skull, fractured skull, and then Algier is stunned to oblivion. <laughs> Because he, because we don't really have the word electrocution yet, because electricity is still so new. And I was like, I just, I kind of want my death uh, certificate to read "stunned to oblivion." Yeah, it's kind of a cool. It's, it's a badass way to go. It really. I mean, if you're gonna die, then that would be one hell of a descriptor. Right. But but you know, I'm glad you brought this up because there was one more thing I wanted to do too. Toward the end of our last pages of reading. In this section, it talked about how Daniel Burnham had hired C.D. Arnold to to photograph the entire the entire place throughout the entire thing. Um, his name is uh, where? Wait, hold on a second. Where is it? Uh, Ch- uh, Charles Dudley Charles Dudley Arnold. So I went and I I said, okay, well, I'm going to go look up for this guy. I put in Charles Dudley Arnold. The, uh, I found something from the, the Chicago Public Library. Now, if you go, you can put in 1893 World's Fair as much as you want. You'll maybe find about a dozen a dozen uh, unique pictures, but nothing. You you think like it was the 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 worst covered media event ever that there's just nothing you can do there's one picture of a woman on top of a big building looking out at the campus there's a little bit more of that main causeway in there there's some other stuff you can get a there's a couple of it illuminated at at night but Lindsay, i don't know if we have anybody in this audience right now that that is a citizen of chicago but i found the chicago public library i'm putting it up on the screen right now Dates, C.D. Arnold Photographic Collection, 1891 to 1893. Size, 23.75 linear feet in 20 boxes, including 12 volumes, 1,091 plates. Okay, that is plates contain multiple images. Some plates contain multiple images. And we're talking about 1,091. I'm looking into the abstract, the biographical historical over here, and then I get into the collection inventory that is all listed on the .org. We have, look at these, look at this. These are boxes and volumes, mines building, looking northwest, women's building, interior, agricultural building, west front, machinery hall, interior, office buildings, manufacturers, liberal arts, looking southwest, first two arches of the liberal arts building. I mean, they have everything. There is nothing on the internet, but apparently there is thousands of photos that is in the Chicago Public Library. We wow. we've got to we've got to see this. There's no yeah. How the hell we get it? Look at this. I mean the view from the colonnade north to Illinois building. View from Illinois building uh, south to transportation building. They have every angle of this campus photographed from every cardinal direction, and you would never know it based on what is available to the public on the internet. We've we've got to find a way to see this. See, that's another reason why people were like, well, why are there so few pictures? People would be taking pictures. There'd be all of these pictures everywhere. But this is exactly one of those things that happens, that things get stored away in libraries or even museums sometimes. And they're not just out there saturated. And we're so used to finding whatever we think we want to find online. But the truth is there's so many places to research that are offline only uh, that have so much more to available to us and would dispel this idea. I think at least it would temper the idea that 
you know this never even happened or it wasn't built then or whatever which which i've i've entertained many times like i love to think about these things but the more i read this book and the more i find things exactly like what you're just sharing this huge massive collection of photographs no one's seen um that makes me lean towards yeah it did happen exactly as this book is describing well i'm putting i'm putting that link in the in the uh the chat room right now also remember we're going to get into the thread right now on the forum i also attached two pdfs on that thread in the forum and those are pretty much the illustrated campus map of what's going on there in case people wanted to you know visualize it in their mind's eye of what's happening in the story all right first one up on the thread is from my michelle Michelle says, thus far, the biggest thing I've derived from this book is how it is set just a few years after the brutal Civil War. That war was far from the minds of American elites. It was just onward and upward. American greatness. Part of me admires that. The other part of me is so bewildered how disconnected power can make people. Plus, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, plays a role here. During a time of great change, culturally and industrially, there will always be those desiring to prey on the most vulnerable. Back then, it was the women seeking a different life. Today, it is our children. But even in the midst of this power struggle, you still see men and women of great principle, hence the business owner that put out the newspaper ad warning women of predators among them. History truly repeats itself. Yeah, well, uh, Burnham also treated the workers there so well for as long as he could and, and spared no expense, right? They had free health care. They had free meals. They were housed there if they wanted to be. It was clean. It was like the best living that a lot of those people had ever had. And he seems to have been saddened when they had to cut the budget and stop treating workers like that. So he was also one of those people who was really looking out for as much as he could, the, the little guy, even though that wasn't his goal in life, it was not something that was out of his mind. So I, I love that there are those people always, too, the helpers. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, Sharon says, there are many I didn't know uh, I didn't know that moments in Devil in the White City. One that stood out to me this week occurred on page 131 when General Electric and Westinghouse were bidding against each other to bring electric power to the fair. Thomas Edison, the wizard of Men uh, Menlo Park, with his direct current power and incandescent light bulbs, or Nikola Tesla's alternating current. Of course, they would choose the direct current from General Electric, changing... No, they they, they, they changed... They, they, they did Edison. They did... Uh, or, sorry. Tesla. Westinghouse. Yeah. yeah, they did Westinghouse. Yes, the bid was the lowest, but imagine if they had chosen Tesla's alternating current. They did, though. They did. It yeah, did. I know. I did. I had the same disbelief, though, because our history is painted with Edison as the winner of everything. And Tesla's just like dies forgotten in love with a pigeon. And so you're like, of course, they didn't choose Tesla, but they did. It blew my mind. So I understand the disconnect here. Yeah. And <laughs> it, took, it took me a while. NJSF uh, commented and said in the battle between Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla, I think the biggest change that would have happened would be the fastest adoption of AC for power transmission, eventually uh, alternating current, one, due to the lower attenuation over long distances. DC did make a comeback with electronics, but always in low power situations. It's unclear to me that the battle would have really de-escalated if Tesla would have won the fair. And then he did say, oh, actually, I reread that, and Tesla did, through Westinghouse, actually win. So, yeah, that's a... Um, that's that. Now, the, here's another one. That was the most sinister, sickening Christmas Eve tale I've ever read. Interesting that, uh, oh, yes, Elias yeah. Disney. That oh, yeah. It, Elias Disney shows up. Walt's dad had never heard of him before. Yes, I had, I had, um, I underlined he, that. Because doesn't he also describe this Chicago's Fair to his son as... Yeah, on page 153, he says, In all the workforce in the park, numbered 4,000, the ranks included a carpenter and furniture maker named Elias Disney, who in coming years would tell many stories about the construction of this magical realm beside the lake. His son, Walter, take note. And I was like, is that the logo? Is I, that like the magical? I To think that the Magic Kingdom uh, may have been inspired by what Walt would learn from his father about the construction of the White City so cool. uh, these are the thing. These are the the, the dots. I it is such a satisfying itch to be scratched when you get a dot like that connected. Um, I I just I just love it. Thank you for bringing that up. Summer seven one one. Let me see here. Oh my gosh. Uh, quite frankly, producer. That's Krista. Krista said. 
On page 102, vanishment seemed a Chicago pastime. Detectives were few, their resources and skilled minimal. Class obscured their vision. Ordinary vanishings, Polish girls, stockyard boys, Italian laborers, Negro women merited little effort. Only the disappearance of moneyed souls drew a forceful response. Not much has changed, says producer. Over the course of a century and beyond, although the advent of the Internet and rise in popularity of true crime reporting has given a voice to those victims who would have otherwise been forgotten in a previous era, the Long Island serial killer and his penchant for lower-class prostitutes come to mind. Yeah, and as we said before, can you imagine, can you imagine if there was, a, as far as the surveillance state that does not exist and how there is no digit, digitizing of criminal records, there is no database for sharing fingerprints and mug shots or anything like that, there's no CCTV, uh, there, it's, it's very hard to prove somebody's identity in 1893. Can you imagine if we had any less of a connection to a common moral fabric uh, as we, like, like right now, it, it would be a, it would be a, a war. A war beyond a war. Um, here's another one. This is a very interesting one right here. From, where is it? John Carroll, good friend of mine. John Carroll says, something to keep in mind as we continue reading. All of the architects were likely Freemasons. On page 57, it says Burnham and Root build the Masonic Fraternity Temple. Masonic temples are constructed in a very specific way and encoded with sacred geometry. These techniques are closely guarded secrets, so non-Masons would have probably never been allowed near a project like that. Also, just thinking about the Masons in general, they are builders first and foremost, stone Masons. The architects we're reading about, uh, we are reading about are the men who literally built America. I'm not sure if this will be relevant at some point, but it just stuck out to me. Um, I, I forget how relevant it will be in the, the later parts of, this, of the, uh, the book, John, but it is so relevant just in general because you are right. These are the most prolific builders in America. They have their fingerprints indelibly marked, marked all over the biggest parks and bridges and, and cities that we have, and they were all Masons. It's uh, well, it's true. Yeah, and I was thinking even that you know knowing the Masons and how they roll that they chose Chicago not not just for any random reason, but there was probably like numerical reasons and astrological reasons and all sorts of occult things going on. Like, and the park itself was chosen for a certain location reason, ley lines, who knows what? Because that's what they're into. They're all sorts of occult and esoteric. So I imagine that a lot more went into you know, deciding exactly where, exactly when, which days and all of this stuff, then we are, then we know, then we are going to be told in this book. <laughs> yes. Um, Allie Q, she put together the, the, that little element of, she pointed out on 87, the, the psychopath line about how the little element of humanism is missing. Um, let's see here. You know, to bring that back to that class comment, too, about how women and Negroes and whoever are going to be ignored and that crime just doesn't really go, um, you know, to get sought after to be solved. That first page of this section on 85, they're describing, you know, uh, Holmes choosing um, his building in a specific way as well to attract exactly that type of clientele that no one's going to really mess. They, they literally point out just comfortable enough and cheap enough to lure a certain kind of clientele and convincing enough to justify a large fire insurance policy. <laughs> um, so he, he was plotting too, and he knew which type of class of society was going to be less likely to draw any attention to him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, here's another one from Ali Q. P.S. As a retired English teacher, these books, cl book clubs are wonderful. I have so much, uh, so much enjoyed Frank, Jay, Charlie, and now Lindsay. Fantastic teachers all. That's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, quite frankly, producer Krista again says, I found it ironic that the only female architect was granted permission to oversee a building at the World's Fair, yet that building was the only um, the only one female architect? Yet that building was the only one uh, one of two structures that were ahead of schedule. Yeah, it's too bad that the other women uh, involved with the project made her go nuts. I know. You know? <laughs> she she had a lot to prove, right? She was probably like, "Oh, we're going to get this done." Like, no one's going to say the women didn't do it. <laughs> right. No, it, it it's great. I love all that. Let's see here. Um, 
I'm uh, 26 Ahab says I'm, I'm amazed how Holmes was able to restrict his hotel guest list solely to single young women at the time where the demand for any kind of decent lodging was so acute. There's no mention of how he marketed the facility, if at all. I know these events occurred long before our amazing government really began to impose all these wonderful equal opportunity laws on our society. But it seems to me that during at a time when society was at least viewed more buttoned up, I believe that's how Larson described it. At one point, it was still so easy for a single man with such dubious ties to the community at large to operate his establishment in such a manner without more public scrutiny. Yeah, well, I I, I think the um, I think the issue there, twenty six, is that uh, especially with Holmes, he was very involved in the community, and um, now obviously. With the scams that he is running on everybody, he tries to offload some of the responsibility for his actions onto assumed identities of fake names and parent companies, and then he tries to give it to other poor, poor fools like Ned Connor and stuff like that. But you can tell that this game that he's playing with everybody, it's, it's, it's going to have its end. There's only so many enemies you can make before people start talking and uh, realizing that you are, you're doing something else. But in the meantime, I think he's just working, working the neighborhood very smartly. Well, there was a woman at some point who has some suspicions and and the and Eric Larson quotes her and she had said something to the extent of like, well, I, I thought about how many women came and went from there and how many of them were never seen again. But I just assumed it was like the moral looseness of the time, you know, not that there was something horrifying going on. Uh, so that some people who did notice had a lot of excuses to give and to let it just sort of slip away. Like, yeah, a lot of people disappear, I guess, whatever, because that was the times. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, there, there's a very, there's a, a very well um, sourced, very well sourced entry over here from NJSF. What I have come to uh, expect of him, uh, I would suggest that a lot of people go and check this out. It's on page two. I don't know if we can get through the whole thing right now. Um, Wart guy says I laughed out loud during the chapter vexed when we saw some uh, some tower submitted proposal to out Eiffel Eiffel an example of what trolling looked like before there was an internet. That's what I was wondering too. I was like, are these people all just joking? They just want to like submit some crazy idea to see what people say. I, I, I mean, was... one of them said we're gonna pack eight feet of feathers on the ground, like as though that was gonna save someone from falling eight thousand feet. Like, right. So, oh. so you just don't know, and and the fact that I mean, at that point, with the heights that they're talking about, and eight thousand, nine thousand feet, to this to this day, there's nothing that comes close to that tall. No. And they wanted to do this in 1893. It and go two thousand feet to the ground. Right. <laughs> what? It, it, or or a slow descent over how many states from Illinois to New York? If you're going to have this nine thousand foot tower, uh, pretty much uh, create a a uh, like a, a bobsled shoot for people and, and then that's the other thing where are all the cars i mean where, where are all these luges that you're going to get people onto how many are going to be on site how do they return from new york is there going to be another nine thousand foot tower that rolls them downhill the other way i mean there's it's it's so silly um but it's still it's fascinating like, it's like willy wonka yeah like none of this is but i wish it existed but it's never going to exist right um, NJSF, just, just to skim through here, a lot of the stuff that we've already talked about here, um, uh, the, the troubling sign of rising uh, shiftlessness of the age, just how the killer instinct was really just taking over. Um, I was born with a devil in me. One of the eerie quotes, uh, the most eerie quotes now brought that up. So just examining Holmes uh, definitely popped up the idea about how this gathering of architects were the the most important artistic gathering since the 15th century, a Renaissance, uh, a Renaissance reference, which is very, very complimentary. And then going back to a couple that I had to skip over in the first, let's see. Um, that's, uh, let's see. Uh, shoot. Oh, there's one more over here. I presume our first, quite frankly, book club gathering will include the same menu. And uh, <laughs> Krista pulled together pulled together an actual collage of what the food looks like. <laughs> so we, we've got we've got the menu there for that night, the, but the oysters, got everything. She pulled everything together. 
and you can see these collage, collage of everything. It looks fantastic. I want the filet mignon. I'll, I'll throw that down. I love those, that uh, the potatoes al duchesse, duche. Those potatoes look good. They look kind of like whipped. Um, I don't know, Lindsay. I, I can do most of this stuff. I think I could do most of it. I don't know if I could do it all in one event. Uh, it, I, I think I might explode. Like, that's just a lot of different flavors and richnesses to throw together in right. one stomach. Right, yeah. But maybe I'm a weakling. <laughs> oh, well, I love how, we, like you said, how it's all perforated by little things like this. Like, after the sorbet, it's, t it's specifically time for cigarettes. Yes. They're, they're go this is a time when we are going to inhale the tobacco, and then comes woodcock on toast, asparagus <laughs> sala, and then comes another round of ices, Canton ginger, and then you have cheeses. I wonder if this is all just like mandatory, we're all going through this, or it's just on the menu, you can pick and choose what you'd like. But I love the cheeses, they come with coffee and liqueurs, and then uh, the Madeira, and then you end with cigars. I, I don't know. I, I might throw up. Yeah. It, it's just a combination. Really fun to try. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Just see how far you can make it. Yeah. I want the potatoes and the filet mignon. And I'll definitely start with the oysters. Uh, I'll pass on the cigarettes. I might have a cigar at the end. But uh, the sorbet, uh, I'll, I'll give that a shot. And what's the wo woodcock? That is a bird, no? Duck? Maybe it's a duck. It's just a nicer way of saying duck. It sounds more appealing, perhaps. I think I might do the cigarette back then because it was probably super high quality and like just tobacco and not all the nasty additives. And I quit smoking a long time ago, but it sounds like I bet their cigarettes were a lot better than what we have now. Yeah, probably. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I might take a puff, but I don't think I'm going to finish one because uh, they, they won't have filters or anything like that, too. Uh, here, that's true. I think that's it. I think that's the toast. It looks like toast. So that must be woodcock. I, I guess it's a like a a poultry maybe anyway all right well Lindsay this has been fantastic let's do this let us I have I just, I'm just going by the rule of 75 pages and if we start on page 161 the angel from Dwight we go directly to page 134 which means that it is the app. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, 234. It means it brings us right to the front door of part three in the White City, and there it is, opening day. So, right wow. now, we're going from the Angel of Dwight to knocking on the door of part three. We're just going to stop right there, the white in the White City. That's a good cliffhanger. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, uh, Lindsay, what do you got going on for this week leading up to next Wednesday? What's going on in Rogueways? What can people do to find you? Yeah, you want to go to rogueways.org. That's my site for everything Rogueways. You can get to all of my shows, books, the things I sell in my shop. I've got all kinds of one-on-one -on -one, uh, sessions that I do with people if anybody's interested in that. I do my uh, private show just for supporters tomorrow night. So that's Middle Path. It's on my Rockfin channel, rockfin.com slash rogueways. Uh, and then Sunday, we do the fabulous Day Zero. It's live at 5 p.m. Eastern on rockfin.com slash rogueways. That's with Charlie Robinson, who is um, near last book club and uh x cube 420 and Corey hughes so that'll be happening this sunday i always have a good interview on monday nights and then tuesdays i do my winning report which is like a wrap-up of the week's news but with a very optimistic view okay so optimism that that's i i, I can sign on with that absolutely uh somebody just said i should go over the menu that we just read with our resident in-house nutritionist jay gulinello i think we're going to do that um and uh Oh, that's the other thing. I put the C.D. Arnold photographic collection link from the Chicago Public Library into the chat room over here. But we, I don't know, especially our friends out there who are in Chicago, we've got to try to find a way to get in front of these slides. We, we, we got to. If it's a public library, this was done. I mean, the, everything, that, one thing that we're learning about this, I, I think it's ironic that we're reading about congressmen who are looking over the budget that is being spent by Burnham and crew and, uh, and, and like wondering whether or not it's all, it's all on the up and up when, it, uh, you know, to, to think about anybody that's a member of Congress that actually cares about sticking to a budget, 
uh, is really something to behold at this point. But the <laughs> fact that most of this, every hire that was made, was coming from a public trust and especially acts of Congress, I would have to imagine that these photographs are property of the public. We've got to see these. Um, I don't know who can go out there on our behalf and make some inquiries, but uh, there's thousands of photographs that we've got to see the internet needs. Yeah. Sometimes there's colleges too that have like digitized certain collections and have those available in their history department. So I wonder if there's also somewhere kind of hidden online that might have some of that, or maybe even archive.org. Have we tried that? Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it. We should look there, too. But, yeah, if someone's live on the ground there, that would be awesome detective work. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about old school uh, plates, old school photograph plates here. So, I mean, Uh this is going to be... That'd be amazing. That would be, we would be doing, this book club would do such a service for the world if we were able, if we were able to actually be the reason why that there was even a couple of dozen more pictures available to the public in digital form because they're all locked away. And obviously there's not a lot of people inquiring about it, but uh, thankfully people like us are getting together and asking the big questions. So we'll see what happens. Lindsay, thank you. What if somebody went and did sort of a video, whatever, and put something together? And if they wanted to do that, you and I could maybe release it on our channels if they wanted to, if they wanted that to happen. I would love that. I would love that, too. Anybody in Chicago that wants to uh, to work with Lindsay and I on this, get in touch with me and uh, and we can do we can we can figure something out at least to go and make some inquiries. I mean, hey, yeah. you know what? A phone call is a phone call. I can make a phone call from New York. Um, but we'll see where it goes. Maybe we'll have an update next week. Uh, Lindsay, I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you for everything. You too. Thanks, Frank. Bye, everybody. All right, everybody. Have a great night.